So we're going to be in the most famous psalm in, in the Psalter, all right? The book of Psalms has 150 chapters, and even if you're new to church and new to Bible study, you have heard this psalm, or at least parts of it, because this psalm is in some ways part of the fabric, really, of our country. And it's not just a part of the fabric of our country. You've probably also heard it a lot of times. If you've ever been to a funeral, this psalm has almost for sure uh, been read, and it is the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23 is where we're going to be. And again, this is famous. It is uh, poetic, but don't make the mistake that just because it is uh, poetic and because it's easy to needlepoint, and some of you have it on your coffee mug, don't make the mistake of thinking this is just a kind of a winsome, sentimental psalm. This thing is nitty gritty and deals with the biggest questions and the biggest issues of our lives. And so the 20th century, I want to put a quote up. I put this up a while back, or I quoted this to you a while back. Is a 20th century writer, theologian, pastor named A.W. Tozer. And here's what he said. He said, the most important thing about a person, the most important thing about a person, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Leave that up there for just a second. What comes into our minds when we think about God, this is a big statement, is the most important thing about us. He says, what you think about when you think about God will determine almost everything in your life. The attributes, the characteristics, what kind of God that you serve and worship, what you think about when you think about God determines almost everything. It determines what we value, what we pursue, how we pursue it, how we see difficulties, how we see disappointments, how we see temptation, even how we see guilt and shame once if we fall to temptation. He's like, this is more important than your tax bracket, your ethnicity, your family of origin, the town you grew up in. He said, all of that pales in comparison to what you think about when you think about God. And so when we go into Psalm 23, what's important to understand is although David wrote this Psalm, it's not about David at all. It doesn't talk about David's personal life. It doesn't talk about, you know, how David overcame Goliath. It doesn't talk about any of that stuff. It talks about his relationship to God and the attributes of God that make him his, what he's going to call his, his shepherd, his shepherd. So Psalm 23, what we want to do is, as we unpack this, understand that he's going to paint a picture of a God who is not just there to help us have our best life now or to feel kind of awesome and sentimental in worship. He is there to radically humble us and change us and transform us from the inside out. So Psalm 23, here's what we're going to do. We haven't done this in a pretty good while. I want you, wherever you are, whether you're Hendersonville or East or Franklin or wherever you are, I want you to stand with me. Go ahead and stand right where you are. And we're going to read this together, all right? So if you get off cue, just jump right back on. So we're going to read. There's only six verses. So I'm going to start, and you just read it with me, all right? One, two, three. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right, go ahead and be seated. Good job on that. I know some of you kind of got tripped up because some of you got that memorized like KJV, and you're like, yay, though I walked in. Okay, it's fine, but great, great job on that. So what I'm gonna try to do is list for you. I started off with six, got to three, but the idea of the attributes, the attributes, the characteristics, what God is like, they come out of Psalm 23. But before we even get to the attributes and what David says, that's my shepherd, you have to answer the question, is he your shepherd? Now don't just blow on past this. Is he your shepherd? Are you one of his sheep? Because if you don't get that down, the rest of the psalm is really irrelevant to you. Is he your shepherd? So let me kind of paint this picture. It starts off and it says, the Lord is my shepherd. And in your Bible, most of your translations has the, has the word Lord in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned to you, when you see that in your Bible, what you're seeing there is the covenant name for God. It's the word Yahweh. It's the way that God introduces himself to Moses way back in the book of Exodus. Moses goes, hey, who should I tell him sent me? You want me to go deliver this very difficult message? Who do I tell him? Not gonna believe me. Who do I tell him send me? And he says, you tell him Yahweh. You tell I am that I am sent you. And the idea is he's saying, I am the, I am the self-sufficient, all-powerful creator God of the whole universe. I'm the one that's gonna bring the plagues. I'm the one that's gonna drown the Egyptian army. You tell them that's the God that sent you. I'm the one that breathes life. I'm the one that takes life. And so even in the word Yahweh, you can kind of tell, it's actually supposed to, the idea of your breath, it's like you breathe in, Yah, and then you breathe out, Way, Yah, Way. In other words, this is the God that gives you breath. This is the one that can take breath. That's who this God is. And what he says is, I want you to get the understanding, this is a huge, huge God, but then he says, but he's my shepherd. One of the most important words is that word my, my shepherd. And again, are you one of his sheep? Is he your shepherd? Now, there's a rule that we've done as our church for years now. It is, it's a hermeneutical rule. And hermeneutics is simply rules to interpret the Bible. And one of the main rules, and we just didn't make these up. These are ones in this case. This is one Jesus gave us, all right? We talked about hermeneutical rules. What did it mean then? What does it mean now? What does it mean to me personally? Those are good rules. But the main hermeneutical rule you want to ask, particularly when you're in the Old Testament, is what does this tell us of Jesus? Because Jesus tells us the Old Testament is about Jesus. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. He tells the religious leaders of that day, you look in there and you think you find life in there. He said, those are talking about me. He talks to a couple of disciples after the resurrection and he opened up the Bible and he said he showed them himself in the Old Testament. You go into the epistles, the teaching of the New Testament, and it talks about a hermeneutical rule is understanding that in the Old Testament, either in shadow or substance or prophecy, it's talking about Jesus. And so when you look at this one, you just got to understand the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. When you look at Noah and the ark, what is it? It's, it's painting a picture that, you know what? Mankind is going to be saved, that that's pointing to Jesus as the greater ark. The Passover lamb, where it's like, okay, shed the blood of the lamb, put it over your doorpost. That's a picture that Jesus would one day be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying the Lord, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is my shepherd. Now, oftentimes you'll hear on talk radio and different things or television shows, 
Jesus never claimed to be God, which is absolutely silly when you actually do and look at the context. One of the most obvious ones is Jesus takes that statement where God says, I am that I am. And then even just in the gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And when he tells those statements, the people want to stone him because they understand he's claiming, he's claiming to be the God of I am that I am. And so Jesus says, I am also the good shepherd. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then later on in the chapter, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So what he's saying is my sheep know that Jesus is going to lay down his life for them and they hear his invitation and they ask him to be their savior, their shepherd. And if you're not sure about that, my, only, my promise to you today is he will answer that prayer 100% of the time. If you're sitting at church or watching online and with a cup of coffee and, and you're like, you know what? I want that God who loves me and died for me. I want, I want him to be my shepherd. I want him to be my master. I want him to be my savior. I want him to rescue me just like those little kids were singing about. Then you pray that and God, would you rescue me right where I sit? He will answer that prayer a hundred percent of the time because you're sitting around people that have also, many of them have done the same thing. What you're doing is you're asking you're asking God for a favor. God, would you do me a favor and show me mercy and show me grace? He will answer that prayer 100% of the time. That is an amen right there. And here's, here's what, uh, sometimes people are like, well, I, I think so, I think I have. I, got, I gotta emphasize this. I, when you become a sheep, when you give your life to Christ, you, you, don't just ca- you don't catch Jesus like you catch a cold. All right, you can catch a cold accidentally. In order for you to say, Jesus, I want you to be my shepherd, that's gotta be something you choose. And the question you have to ask is, have I chosen that? I'm not talking about perfection, but has there been a point in your life where you had a demarcation? This was before I asked Jesus to be my shepherd. I asked him to be my shepherd, and this is me on the other side of it with him as my shepherd. Because he's gonna say, the Lord, the God that created everything, He's like, he's a big God. He's a huge God. He's a creator God. He gives breath, but he's also super personal because he's what? He's my, he's my shepherd. And that's what he means by I shall not want, by the way. A lot of times people abuse that second half of that verse one when he's like, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And preachers down through the ages have used that as sort of a sort of like, you know what? You can ask for cotton candy and Cadillacs and God is obligated to give you anything you want. That's not what he's saying at all. He's like, I'm not going to lack anything. In other words, I am 100% content with the management of my shepherd of my life. That I don't want a different shepherd. I got the best shepherd possible. That's oftentimes what you hear preachers say is we don't follow Jesus just because he makes your life better. Listen to this. We don't just follow Jesus because he makes your life better. Now, does he make your life better? Yeah, he does. He actually does. I mean, 90% of what happened, it's better. Usually life goes better when we just follow what he says. When we don't commit adultery, when we don't lie, when we don't cheat, when we don't do those things, typically life does go better if we follow that. But we don't do it just because he gives us our best life now. We do it because he is better than life. But please understand this. Your shepherd will not be a means to your end. When you understand he's the shepherd, he is the end. He is the end. He's what you're going for. He's who's managing your life. He's what brings you satisfaction. So, all that by introduction. Let me, give you, let me give you a few things about this shepherd. Number one, you see it? We're just gonna go right through the text. It's 
Oh, it's not very creative, but it's right in the Bible, which is what we need. So here's what he says. And put number one, he leads you. He leads you. Like where are you seeing that? Verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures. We'll come back to that. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So he makes, he leads, he leads. And the reason this is important is because sheep are dumb. They really are. Sheep are dumb. What's amazing, and all this week I was sitting there thinking, I was reading this little book. There's a guy named uh, Philip Keller, not Tim Keller, Philip Keller. He wrote a book called The Shepherd's Guide to Psalm 23. It's like 40 years old. I remember reading it you know, way, way back in the day because he's got a unique perspective. He was a, actually a shepherd near the Middle East for many, many years, and then he became a pastor. And so he's like, huh, I was a shepherd. Now I'm a pastor. Let me write a book. That's like an awesome idea. So what he does is he goes through all these characteristics of a sheep, because there's not many people in here that are like, I don't think we ever get sheep herders, any shepherds in here? No, not many. I mean, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know any of that stuff. Most of us are a little more urban, a little less rural. And so learning about sheep and shepherds is somewhat enlightening. And one of the things is, is that sheep are, they're, they're just like really dumb. They will do stuff that actually hurts them. Like one of the things you learn is a sheep will walk down the same path over and over and over and over again. They'll just walk down the same path over and over and over again until the grass is all but gone. And while they're going up and down, up and down, up and down, they'll poop on the same, the same place they're walking on. And then it seeps into the ground. And then sooner or later, they're actually eating their own stuff and it poisons them. Can you imagine what animal is so dumb that they would put stuff in their body that would actually hurt them? I mean, who could be that silly? Who could be that silly? Who could be that dumb to actually do something? What's amazing is God looks at the sheep and then he looks at the church and he's like, yeah, that reminds me of the church. That actually reminds me of some of us. That's what you all do. That's what we do. And um, we, have a, uh, we have a tendency, the old hymn writer said, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so some of you all, if you're on Instagram or whatever, there was a little video that made its rounds maybe about a year ago. And I'm like, every time I see it, it hurts. It's funny, but it hurts. It's funny, but it hurts. Check it out. It's about 15 seconds. It's a shepherd getting him out of the ditch. I was like, that is, that is so us. It's like, let me get you out of this ditch. Oh, I'm so happy. Let me go jump right back in there. And that's what he's saying. It's like, see if we're just that way. They're just that way. And by the way, I will say this. I, I know I high side on cats all the time and I always brag on the German Shepherd Ranger. But I, I, what y'all probably don't know is we have a second dog and her name is Gracie and she's a little mini schnauzer. And I don't know how to say this, but she's dumb. She's not a smart dog at all. I know, I know, I know. Some of you are like, we have many schnauzers, and did you know they're fourth on the smartest dog? Whatever. My schnauzer's dumb, all right? And she has a death wish. She's not a Mensa at all. She's just not. I'll give you examples. Like one time when we lived over in Fletcher, we're just sitting there walking, and all of a sudden she jumps into Cane Creek and gets washed down there. Had to send the lab, but go get, go get Gracie, go get Gracie, pulls her out. A few years ago, some of y'all remember, because my wife put it like on Facebook and it had like 300,000 shares or something, is we got a mountain behind our house. So I'm back there walking with the dog, with, the rain, with Ranger the dog, and we're sitting there minding our own business, having a great time. I look around, Gracie, Gracie, no Gracie, Gracie, no Gracie. 
I told you the story, I had to make that terrible phone call back to the house on the hopes that maybe Gracie had gone back to the house and Laura would say, hey baby, it's okay, Gracie's back home. Because I knew if I shot that shot and she wasn't back home, it was gonna be like really, really, really not good. And so, but eventually I was like, I can't find the dog, we're on a mountain, you got bears, you got coyotes, you got all sorts of stuff. She is the lowest person on the food chain out there. The deer, the deer, the deer would beat her up. So all of that being said, I call back, no Gracie. We spend two and a half days, two and a half days looking for her. It's in, uh, it's cold, but not freezing cold. Long story short, I was sitting up here preaching actually on that Sunday morning. I look over, I see Lori, my wife, get up and leave. And I'm like, dude, I'm really stinking on the sermon. And she's getting up to leave. The wife leaves. Somebody had called her, saw one of those posters or a Facebook post, went and found her over there on Pennsylvania Avenue. She had, and to her credit, this was a little smart, it's also probably a good illustration. She had actually laid in a bunch of poop so she could stay warm and she actually survived the night. That's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. I'll give you one last one. We're about, about five years ago, no, probably about seven years ago, we were looking for a house. It's, it's, we ended up finding where we live now. We we're looking for a house. I can't remember where we are, but realtor's showing us some house. We took the dogs along. We had a Jeep, put the dogs in the back. We put their collar on. And then, you know, kind of put the leash on because just stay in the back of the Jeep. We're in a neighborhood. I went up there. We're, we're looking at the house. I'm on the second floor and I just tabbered in some room. I happened to look out the window down at the Jeep. I promise you this is the case. That dumb schnauzer, that dumb schnauzer had just jumped out of the Jeep with the leash on and she's not struggling. She's not straining. She's not barking, but she just, hang, she's hanging there, she's hanging there, rope around her neck dying. She's like, somebody get me some, somebody get me. I ran down there real quick, you know, rescued her. I'm like, that's, that's, that's who she is. That's who she is. That's who we are. That's who we are. When you think about it, um, I mean, she, she, sheep are, sheep are dumb, but have you ever met the person that woke up one morning and said, you know what? Today is the day I'm going to flush my life down the toilet. You ever met anybody that woke up one day and said, you know, today's the day I'm going to go against my vows and cheat on my spouse. Today's the day I'm going to go after that substance once again. Have you ever met a person that woke up one morning and said, today is the day, today's the day I'm going to cheat on my taxes or I'm going to cheat in my business. Today's the day we're going to no. know what happens. We wander that way. We take one step, then we take another step, and then we take, all of a sudden, we're 20 steps into it. You can barely see who you used to be. Why? Because we are prone to wander. And I, I tell you one other thing I learned about sheep is, you know how it says, it says that he leads me beside the still waters? According to Keller, what they would do is, sheep are, they're so enamored with rapids and running water, they're just so enamored with it. Look at that, look at that, look at that. And they go and they stick their head into the running water and then it gets on their wool and then they fall in and drown. And I thought, what other, I mean, what creature could be so dumb to take a gift of God like water and then abuse it in such a way as where it actually hurts them? I mean, who, what animal would be that dumb to say, I'm gonna take something that's good and precious from God, use it in the wrong way, so much that it is bad for me. Here's what I want to remind us is the, 
The opinion shapers of this world, you have to understand this. The opinion shapers of this world in this culture, they spend billions of dollars on fake shepherds and brown grass to try to convince you that they will actually ultimately satisfy you, satisfy your soul. And part of being in worship, part of being in the word, part of being in community is that weekly reminder to say, you know what? He is my shepherd. He's, he's the one that actually will fulfill and satisfy my soul. I, I, this is an old illustration, but I, I always think about it when we're talking about something like this. this. This is early, not early, this is mid-career for Tom Brady. If you're not a football fan, I know they tell preachers, don't use sports illustrations because half your audience won't get it. But most people know Tom Brady. I mean, most people do. If not, I'll use a ballet illustration sometime and I won't know what I'm talking about. So I will, um, but Brady is basically arguably the greatest quarterback that ever lived, as hard as it is to say that. I think he ended up with seven Super Bowls, maybe six or seven. And um, I know we got some Falcon fans in here and I know that still has a scar in your soul, but it's okay. But Brady said, Brady actually, he's, he's being interviewed, I think by 60 minutes. And at, at this point, he'd won three Super Bowls. He's married to a supermodel. I mean, he's got every possible thing that the world could ever offer. And they asked him, uh, just, you know, how, how does it, is this like the ultimate of your life? And here's what he said, and I, I, I love the honesty. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think, God, it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, I'm 27. What else is there for me? And the 60 Minutes guy goes, well, what's the answer? And Brady's like, I wish I knew, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. And folks, what the psalmist is saying is, and this is, we don't know when David wrote this for sure. Some people go, he wrote this when he was a shepherd boy. It doesn't feel like that, does it? It doesn't feel like he's a young teenager. It feels like he's an older man looking back at his life and some of the lessons he learned or started to learn early on. And then he went through a bunch of tough stuff. And now he's looking back going, you know, the whole time the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And look how he has led me. He has provided for me. And so it's a good, a reminder. The reminder is you have to resist the prone, the proneness to wander. When God says stuff about you, you name it. When he says something about sex or says something about money or says something about community, our tendency is to go, God, I got this. I got this. In other words, I know how to do my life better than you know how to do my life. And you've got to push against that. You got to push against that because it's not, I can't remember what preacher said it. It's not the parts of the Bible that are hard to understand that give me trouble. It's the parts of the Bible that are easy to understand that give me trouble. Meaning that God's word is not real fancy about, let's say, sex. Sex is between a man and a woman in a marriage covenant. It's really not that simple. I mean, it's not that complicated. It's not people who want to be married or, or used to be married or are or, or married in their heart. It's people who are married. That's who sex is for. Man and a woman in a marriage covenant. Money's not that complicated in the Bible. It's not. I know you're getting nervous now. You're like, you can talk about sex all you want to. You talk about money? No. But I'm talking about just money. It's not that complicated. He basically says to spend some he says to save some, and he says to share some. Now, normally we're great at the first one, decent at the second one, and terrible at the third one. Just statistically, we are. Community. I've told, I've told you this time, I'm going to do this until I die. It's like, you need biblical community. You need it. You need it. 
You don't need it until you need it. You know what I mean? I mean, you're like, I don't need it. You will need it one day. You will need it one day. And so the whole thing is when we don't do that, it's like, I know how to do life better than you. And he's trying to lead you, which by the way, did you notice that little phrase, especially in our culture, we don't like this little phrase. It says he makes me see that one. We like the still waters part. We love that part. We like the calm waters in the pastoral setting where Lifeway Jesus is like petting the sheep and stuff. But there's a part that says he makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me. This is a shepherd who will make you do some stuff. You're like, nobody makes me do anything. I'm my own boss. Well, then you know what? What you're telling me is you're the shepherd. You're the shepherd. He's not the shepherd. Because where you and Jesus disagree, if he's your shepherd, he's right, you're wrong. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will change. But he will lead you. Man, I got, I got a ton of stuff. Uh, do you know actually God is willing to make you uncomfortable in order to help you get healthy again? Last thing about Keller. This whole sheep thing, I don't think they do this anymore. It probably got written up by Pete or something, but back in the day, what shepherds would do, if you had a sheep that always wandered, I mean, like went off over and over, hey, come back, hey, come back, and they kept wandering, kept wandering, just tell me what they did. What they used to do is they would, if that sheep would continue to wander, knowing that if he wandered and wandered and wandered, there would be a day where he didn't wander back. There would be a day where the wolf or something gets him out there. So in a radical move, what a shepherd would do back in the Middle East is they would actually pick up that sheep and crack, break one of their front legs. So for at least three months, that sheep could not walk for a while. So the sheep had to hang around the shepherd the whole time. He had to be carried by the shepherd. But what happened after three months of hanging around the shepherd, that sheep didn't wander anymore. And so the whole point is, is he willing to make you uncomfortable to save you future consequences? I'm just telling you, yes, he is. He wants to lead you. Look at verse four and five. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Learn to look at the prepositions in the Bible. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So he will lead you, but then this one's pretty obvious too. He will comfort you. He does comfort you. They say that this is a picture of, they would like have to, they're trying to lead the sheep to greener grass and they'd often have to go through these canyons where there was like all these shadows and places where predators could live and predators could be and they could sneak, you know, if the shepherd wasn't on guard, they'd get out and they'd snatch a sheep. And he's like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I'm going through that, he says, you, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And I know in this room and as many people we got at church today, some of you feel like you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, you feel, you feel like it. And it, it runs the gamut. It could be a recent divorce. It could be prodigal issues. It could be a bad test result. It could be a recent, when we have funerals virtually every week, it could be the death of somebody that you didn't even think was even on the horizon. That's why I said this is a nitty gritty psalm. This is not like a super little needlepoint sentimental psalm because Again, when you read David's life, assuming this is at the end of his life, David had been through some stuff. You understand that? So when he's saying, no, I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. This is not some little easy, little sentimental hallmark card. Think about what David had been through. Just a quick little, besides the fact that he was a warrior. So he'd seen death all around him for years and years and years. 
So, I mean, he has that just on the, off the top. He is a warrior. Some of the other stuff that he'd been through, though, he'd had Saul, the previous king, he tried, he tried to kill him. Obviously, he had his own failures with Bathsheba. He had the death of a child. Some of you all are struggling with that, the death of a child. We just go right past that. And here's one you probably don't hear in Sunday school. He had a daughter that got raped by one of his sons. And then the son, another son, went and killed that guy for doing that to his sister. And so um, David is saying, even though I'm there, I'm not going to walk in fear. And the only reason is, it's not, it's not putting your head in the sand. It's not like, oh, the scan really didn't say the cancer's back. That's not it. That's not, that's not faith. That's foolishness. Honestly, it's foolishness. It's not acting like something's not, it's not acting like, hey, you know what? I'm not even worried about my prodigal. It's, it's not, that's, that's not it. That's fantasy. Faith is saying, you know what? I know God is with me and I know God has made some promises and he has never gone back on any promise. And one of those promises is he will go with me and I don't need to fear. Now, the most frequently command, commanded imperative in the Bible is actually not what you think it is. It's actually do not fear. Do not fear. Now, some of the cousins of that do not be anxious, but do not fear. 366 times, I think it's in the KJV. So it's like every day of the year, do not fear. Here's what I found out. I found out that you have to actually, you don't have to do anything to be fearful, anxious, whatever. I mean, just look at the stats of the emotional health in our country right now. I mean, it is off the charts and you can blame COVID and you can blame whatever. I'm just saying it's off the charts. Suicide off the charts, off the charts. And what's he saying? He's saying, I will not fear evil for you are with me. You are with me. So here, listen to me. If you don't do anything at all, it's so easy to get anxious and fearful. You don't have to feed your fear at all. You got to feed your faith. You got to feed that thing. It's like a muscle. If you don't work it, then it's going to get real, real small and you will walk around so, so, so incredibly anxious. He says, do not fear. Why? Because I am with you. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Verses one, two, and three, he's talking about God and verses four and five, it, it flips and he's talking to God. Don't miss that. First three verses, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's talking about God. Verses four and five, he flips it and he starts praying to God. He's like, God is with me, God is with me. Do you understand, by the way, we have an advantage over David. Little theology lesson, in the Old Testament, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, would come on a, on a person for a particular time and a particular task. But in the New Testament, the Bible says if you're a Christ follower, the third person of the Trinity actually comes to live on the inside of you. If you want to delve into that further, probably the best book I've read in the last five or six years is from our friend J.D. Greer that talks about why the Spirit inside me is better than Jesus with me. Why the Spirit inside me is better than Jesus beside me. In other words, when Jesus was here on earth, he limited himself to being in one place at one time. So as he's with you, he can't be with me. But now guess what? Any place you go, if you're a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit is on the inside of you. Now you kind of see this when he says, you anoint my head with oil. You know, it might be about keeping the flies away if you're a shepherd, but usually in the Bible, the word oil is used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. 
Here's what you got to, I wish this, I wish the text said, I mean, instead of you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, are you with me when you're like, I wish it had kind of said you take out my enemies when that, come on now, it's church, be truthful. I mean, some of the time it's like, won't you just take out my enemy instead of you prepare a table, by the way, table is like for fellowship and God's presence. And you're not the fact you're not going to get, Oh, you know, blocked call. You're not going to get, you know, voicemail. You're not going to get any of that. You're like at the table with him, but you're doing it in the presence of your enemies. Now for David, you know, he might, maybe he was talking about Saul. Maybe he was talking about Absalom. We don't know. And some of you are like, well, yeah, my enemy is my ex-spouse or my ex-business partner, loved one. Please, that is not your enemy. Your enemy is not your ex-spouse. It's not your ex-business partner. It's not your crazy neighbor. That is not your enemy. The Bible says that we war not against flesh and blood. And so you have, one of the things that the Lord the last two years, and really even this week, is you do have an enemy. You do have an enemy. I had never noticed, I mean, I, I'd never taken I'd never taken uh, stock of the fact that the John 10, 10 verse where it says the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you can have life and have it abundantly. I had never made the connection that that verse is in the middle of the bigger chapter about the good shepherd. Did y'all? I'd never done that. I'd never realized that right after John 10, 10 is John 10, 11 that says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so what I want you to understand, even if you're new to church, and I'm, again, you do, you do, have, you do have an enemy. And it's, sometimes it's the person in the mirror. Sometimes it's like, again, if you're new here, we don't believe there's a demon behind every bush, okay? If your car doesn't start when you go to the parking lot today, we're not gonna go ask the demon of a bad transmission. We're not gonna say that, all right? We'll say it's a Dodge. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. We're not gonna say that, we're not gonna say that. Too late. Yeah, right. So sometimes it's the guy in the mirror. Oftentimes behind it, just you got to remember the big picture. Just remember the first part of John 10, 10. I've mentioned that one word the other day that I had not noticed either, that he comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Sometimes people are like, I mean, we talked about this a couple years ago because I got an email, but I've gotten some since then that basically like, you're telling me. In 2023, with all the technological advances we got, all the studies we got on human behavior and all the psychoanalysis, you know, with all of that, are you saying that you believe in a devil and demons? You saying you believe in that? And come on, man, you're kind of educated. You, you believe in that stuff? I, w- I would say ask yourself a few questions. Ask yourself a few questions. I mean, if you have an addiction or maybe somebody you love has an addiction, Whatever it is, pill, porns, booze, whatever. If you've observed them, let's just make it safe. Let's say you know somebody that you love that has an addiction and you watch that addiction destroy them. And you watch them saying, I'm never going to go there again. I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to watch that again. And they go back to it over and over and over, even though, even though it is killing them. Are you telling me that whole thing is just a chemical reaction in their body? Are you telling me that the whole thing is just based on their sociological surroundings? Or could it be the fact that they're not going to get saved unless the power of the resurrected Christ comes in there and sets them free, like John chapter 8 says? Amen. We could do this all day. What about somebody? Oh, okay. 
Let's get, let's get real. Some of, you got some, some of y'all, your marriage is in trouble and you're, tr- and counseling is awesome. And you need, we got some great counselors. We Christ centered biblical counselors. That's awesome. But are you telling me that you think the sole issue in your marriage is the fact that you're not a communicator and that you're an eight on the Enneagram. So, you know, I'm just a leader and I don't ever share my feelings and that makes her mad. And then it all blows up. Are you telling me, do you think that's the only thing that's going on in your marriage? You think the fact that she can't forgive you for something that happened 11 years ago and every time you get in a fight, boom, that just comes up. You're telling me you don't think there's somebody back there pressing the buttons just a little bit? Or how about that prodigal you got, that prodigal daughter you got, that prodigal son? They're making some bad choices. It's going down quickly. Are you thinking it's just because they got a bad peer group or just because they went to a secular university or just because whatever? You think... You don't think there's somebody out there that, and I'm trying, not trying to be really, you're telling me you don't think there's something, someone that actually wants to destroy your family. That's, that to me is more foolish. How about, uh, and just going back to that mental health deal. And again, I'm not trying to get too deep in the weeds and there's nothing wrong with medicine as long as it comes from the right source. Okay. If, if you get prescribed, that's, that's fine. I'm just talking about, you don't think some of this stuff, some of that, you got every reason in the world to be happy. Every reason in the world. Everybody around you, all your, all your teammates and all your classmates and all your neighbors say, you ought to be happy. You're a cheerleader. You're a bank executive. You got the whole thing. You got the house. You got the picket fence. You got the handsome boyfriend. You got all that. You should be happy. But deep inside, you are dying inside. And you think a pill is going to solve that? Do you think that's the sum total of what's going to solve it? I'll give you one last one. You're sitting in church right now, and you got some junk in your past. And everything about you, there's, there's one side that's like, you know what? Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. When Jesus says it is finished, that meant your sin has been paid for. And yet there's another little voice that's saying, don't believe that fool up there. He's talking from an old book about something that happened 2,000 years ago. What if everybody found out what you did? How free you think you'd be then? And so the answer to that question is, 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 uh, is yeah. So what do you and I do? What's he do? You start your weapon, because by in and of ourselves, we are defenseless. Have you ever seen a sheep guard dog or a, a, you know, a sheep dog, or whatever, a guard sheep? Sheep guard, whatever. Have you ever seen a sheep guarding your house? No, you haven't. I don't believe I have any sports teams at all because sports teams want a, you know, a fiery symbol, mascot. Man, there's nothing like the Dallas sheep. I mean, you gave it to Dallas sheep? No, I'd terrified there. Hey, the sheep are coming to town. No, why? Because they got nothing. They got nothing. Everybody else has got something. The deer got speed. The wolves got teeth. The deer got nothing, and they're, they're white. They stand out like those white squirrels. It's like, man, anybody can see them. They're not that fast. They're solely dependent on what? On what? On a shepherd. The only one that needs a full-time hand to take care of them is a sheep. So, and by the way, when he's just, what he's saying is, God, I need some help. I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. Would you help me? And here's the last verse. Surely, goodness and mercy. Some of your translations say loving kindness. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. 
and I will dwell, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is, this is an awesome verse, it really is. So he leads you for sure, he comforts you, which is awesome. But then this is about, he rescues you. Goodness and mercy, goodness and mercy. You know goodness and mercy, that's a person. That's a person, John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. What's the mercy? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That mercy and that goodness, for some of you, it has followed you for years and years and years and years and years and years, and has followed you to the seat that you are now sitting in in church. You're in Brevard, you thought it was all just about friends praying for you and people inviting you and you came with a boyfriend or whatever, and that was goodness and mercy that has been pursuing you all of your life for this day. And that goodness and mercy is Jesus has been following you over and over and over. Mercy is used 120 times just in the book of Psalms. And it's the idea of his loyalty, his covenant love, his faithfulness, his stubborn love. He follows you. The enemy wants you to believe, I've been gone too long, I've done too much, and I've gone too far. That's what he wants you to believe. And what verse six is saying, listen, I got mercy here for you. I got mercy right here for you. When he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that's Old Testament speak for you're gonna go to heaven. Now, how is David gonna say, I'm gonna go to heaven? Is it because David's been a good guy? No, heck no. David has not been a good guy. Read all this, read First and Second Samuel. David is not, his family looks like the Jerry Springer show and he himself in some cases was the, was the impetus of it. So David has not been a great guy. David is not going there based on his resume. Here, I, 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 I learned something this week, and it, you know, it took, took seven years of theological education for me to figure this out, is that right before chapter 23 is chapter 22. So, I, so it dawned on me, it's like, okay, there it is. Chapter 22 is the picture of mercy. Chapter 22, we're not gonna go through that chapter. It, chapter 22 is called a messianic psalm. Let me just read two verses from it. I think you'll see what I mean. We've talked about verse chapter 22 several times. Because David has a bad track record, but he's confident he's gonna go and be with the Lord forever. So how? Because of Psalm 22. So Psalm 22, if you don't know, Psalm 22 is a blow. A lot of times people in the New Testament, they'll sit there and they're like, why does the... Why is the crucifixion not described in detail? Now, we, some reason is, is because they crucified a bunch of people and you have how crucifixion took place. But it's also the fact that Jesus' crucifixion was not described in detail there because it is described in Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Check it out. Let me just give you, let me give you, a, let me give you two verses. You can look across the page if you want to, but... Let me give you the first verse and the last verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, you're like, well, you went over to the God. No, that's Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. What does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which parenthetically was called a rabbinical remiss, which means that he is telling the Jews around the cross when he said, listen, I am the suffering savior in Psalm 22. 
Every boy, every girl, they would know Psalm 22. And so Jesus is up on the cross and he's like, my God, my God, why have, I, why have you forsaken me? He's looking back to say, I am the shepherd. I am the Psalm, the Psalm 22 and what that is talking about. So uh, check out how it ends. Blow by blow throughout. You ought to read Psalm 22 and compare it to the, compare it to the crucifixion narratives. Psalm 22, verse 31 says, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people What's that say? Yet unborn. Who do you think that is? That's you. That's me. He's like, they're going to proclaim his righteousness. Who? The righteousness of Jesus. We're going to proclaim his righteousness to people who were not born. And what are they going to proclaim? That last phrase, it says that he has done it. That he has done it. The Hebrew literally means that it is completed. Or as Jesus would say on the cross, that it is finished that it is finished. And so David could look back at Psalm 22. We can look back at the crucifixion and we can say, you know what? The fact that it is finished. Cause some people say what's finished. He wasn't finished. He was going to come up out of the grave in three days. You aren't necessarily finished when you and I turn and repent and come to Jesus. He's saying all self-righteousness, all you trying to make life work, all this stuff that's finished. Condemnation can be finished. So the song we saved a little bit of time at the end. Because that last thing says, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And there's a song that's written on that, that phrase, that last verse. It's just called the goodness of God. And one of the things we talk about at our church all the time is anytime the word is read and the word is taught and the gospel is preached, we have a chance to respond to that. And for some of us, it is, you got to come up and ask Jesus for some help. You're in the valley of the shadow of death. Your marriage is in the toilet. Your health is bad. The scan came back in a very poor way. You got a prodigal, whatever it is. You come as like, Jesus, I need some help. I need some help. I am defenseless. I am defenseless. Let me circle back. There's some other ones that for the very first time, you realize that you have been the Lord of your life and Jesus has not been. And so for you, God's calling you to turn from me where you're trying to make life work and say, Jesus, I need you to be my savior, my shepherd. You can do that right there in your seat. Just dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that when you said it is finished, it somehow, some way counted for me. And I want you to be my savior. Save me where I sit. You can come up here and thank him if you want to. You can tell your friend, you definitely need to tell your friend. Say, hey, I gave my life to Jesus now, what do I do? And for others of us, you got like four minutes to say, you know what, this is what I think about you. God, this is what I think about you. This is how I actually feel about you. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, why don't you stand to your feet, if you would, please. Stand to your feet here at Arden, Hendersonville, Brevard. Stand to your feet. I'm gonna pray, and then we do the come, sing, bring. Come down here and pray, and man, some of us need, some of us have resisted praying for a while. You're like, I can ask Jesus at home. You can, but he's a God who will humble you. Humble you. He says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up at the proper time. So Father, that's what our prayer is. The next three or four minutes, we would be saying, Jesus, I need some help. I need some help. I need some help. I need some help for the glory of God, for the good of my marriage, the good of my prodigal, the good of my soul that needs to be restored. Help me. Help me. Now, for those that don't know Christ, that today they would, they would choose Christ, even though you've been pursuing them, calling out to them, today would be the day they say, Jesus, save me. Save me. Their friend, their family, they would know that. Gotta pray our voices as we sing about the goodness of God. There would be a, a choir, an echo 
that resounds into the lobbies and people out like, what are those people? Those people are, they really believe what they're singing. Because God, you've been good for us. You've been good, you've been faithful all of our lives from the time we got up this morning to the time we go down tonight. We love you. Thanks for being a God who always, always, always is available for us to talk to. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.